0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to what I think is the eighth episode of School Psych Podcast. We're really excited tonight. I'm in a little bit of a different location. I'm in um, the lobby of a Marriott right now. I've had some travel difficulties, got uh, kind of held up a little bit, so um, I've had a rough day. I feel kind of gross and Mm -hmm. unprepared, but I'm still excited to be here and I'm hoping that um, people are still tuning in and are excited to talk as well. I'm Rachel, I'm an NCSP currently working in the state of Texas. Anna? I'm Anna, school psych, working in New York State.
1: And Rebecca?
2: Hi, I'm Rebecca and I'm a school psych working in Connecticut. I'm going to tell you guys a little bit about how to participate tonight. Um, I'm going to have, as we're chatting, I'm going to have the windows for School Psyched, Your School Psychologist Facebook page, also School Psyched podcast page, and Twitter. All open, so you can um, comment or ask questions on any of those pages. You can, on Twitter, use the hashtag podcast. And uh, feel free to comment anywhere on the other pages. I should get notifications as we go.
0: Very nice. We definitely want a lot of participation. Um, Okay, before we get into our topics, um, I know, Anna, that you have posted a poll if you wanted to talk about that a little bit.
1: Sure. Um, I was looking to get the perspective of school psychs out there on the board-certified behavior analysts um, because I want to know how experienced psychs are with... um, working with BCBAs, so I personally don't have any BCBAs in my organization, and so I know that there's some in my area, but not a lot. It's not really a big thing where I am geographically. It's not a big movement yet, but I know that it is for some people. So as far as our poll, we didn't exactly get a, a huge response, so this is not like a you know, well-distributed normative sample, but um, nine people said that they have no BCBAs, Working with with them in their district or building, or do work with BCBAs and two are working towards that credential, and one person is already has it. So some school sites like have that, and some um, don't, and don't work with them. So it's really interesting and something that I personally want to learn more about. And cool. Speaking of um cool things that we can all relate to, I thought before we get started on our BCBA topic, we could share a little tidbit. Um, that sites out there could possibly relate to. So um, we have, like, ongoing conversations with three of us about what we're going to do for a podcast, right? So um, one of us accidentally sent a picture of their office (laughs) I got up before like, by accident in our, in our group conversation, and I was like, oh my god, I'm so jealous right now. Because I have not had an office for many years. I'm a school psych without an office. So I travel to different buildings, and I try to get space. And so one of my counselors might is borrow the borrowed office from someone else. One of my other counselors is is the OT-PT room, where I have my little corner where I do counseling while the OT's over here doing OT, and the PT's over here doing PT. And there's a speech person at the table over here. It's just a big hot mess. <laughs> and then there's a counseling in the hallway because if you don't have the room scheduled and set up at a certain time, you have to do counseling in the hallway. Like what are you gonna do? It's frustrating. frustrating. I don't know if any psych out there can relate, but guys tell us about your office space. Right?
0: Yeah, we definitely will read out some comments and whatnot. I can say on my end, I've had like a, a big variety of offices because um, I have been in a couple different districts and for sure several different schools, and it just varies school by school. I've um, had no office at all. I've had a closet, <laughs> which didn't have any windows or anything, so I couldn't really close the door because something with a, a fire hazard being <laughs> nah. in there because it would lock. Um, And then I've had a small classroom to myself for one year, which is really nice. I had an office, like a big fancy office up at the main uh, front office there, which was cool. And then this year I have an office with a conference table and lots of chairs, but that's mostly because I'm expected to, as part of my duties this year, run annual meetings. So um, I kind of wish that I could train in the big office with the conference table. Um, If I didn't have to run all those meetings type of thing, but how about you, Rebecca? What's your situation?
2: (laughs) I have a great office that I love. It's really, really very tight, but it does fit three adults in a very very close quarters, and it fits. um, I can work one-on-one with a student. Maybe in a tiny little group, I have a, a bench, and Two chairs plus my desk and chair, and I love my office. I I dressed it up. I made it cozy. I'm lobbying for the room next door, which may be free. It's a uh, it's a math enrichment room right now, but it has a big table, and I would love that because they have groups in there, and I wouldn't have to be like you. I, like you guys. I scramble for space sometimes, where, where whenever I need uh, to hold the children. So, but I am. But I am I love my office. Yeah, tell us about your offices. Comment on Facebook. Tell us what kind of pictures state- you have of them. <laughs>
3: yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Okay, School like, Psych podcast, like podcast, right? Psych like, the- Podcast. Okay, so from, from this moment forward, um, if anyone says BA, they are talking about behavior analysts or behavior analysis,
2: <laughs> not badass. Okay, <laughs> well, let's get started. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so should I introduce our guest? Are we ready, guys? Mm-hmm. Okay, so our guest is, I'm really excited to have her. She's Dr. Christine Reeve. She's a consultant to schools working with a A&C across the country, a behavior analyst, a university professor, a blogger, and an author. She also runs an awesome Facebook page that posts um, articles and resources called um, Cla- uh, Classroom Autism News. I hope I'm saying that right, but I'm going to Make sure. And so I think we're ready to introduce Chris, Dr. Reeve. All right, let's bring her on in. Hey everyone.
3: I'm Chris Reeve. I am from Autism Classroom News.
1: Autism Classroom. Uh, and uh, I just, oh, it can't see you yet, I'm sorry.
0: Yeah, <laughs> wait, let's just, let me double check. Ooh. You might have to
2: hit the camera button. There, there. Are,
0: there are. are we good
2: now? We're good. Sorry.
0: Um, and
3: I run a a blog as well as a Facebook page that's designed to share for schools and families uh, who are working with students with autism um, across spectrum, across the ages and trying very hard to keep the information out there so that everyone has access to it and share resources as we find them, because no one has time to find them, find every resource out there on their own. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very cool.
0: For sure, kind of a, a I think a theme that we share is you know getting resources out to people. Yeah.
1: So, um, Chris, for those of us who are un- unfamiliar, tell us a little bit about BCBA, what it means. So, to get there Could be one. I'm a board certified behavior analyst,
3: and the D is for the doctoral level. And there's actually three different, actually now there's four different levels of certification. There are behavior techs, um, who are not necessarily certified behavior analysts. There are behavior analyst assistants, who are BC ABAs. Um Generally, they are folks with bachelor's degree and three uh, or four courses and supervised experience. There's a master's level which is the most common, and people, and people generally have a master's in a related field as well as supervised experience and a specific set of courses. And then there is a doctoral designation now that requires a doctorate in ABA-related material with a behavioral dissertation and specific coursework. Um, And so I actually, I've been a behavior analyst since before there was a national certification. It started as a Florida certification in our developmental disabilities community. And I became certified through that, and then I became certified at the national level. Many states now also have licenses in behavior analysis that generally will take the requirements from the BCBA, but will control them on a state level to protect consumers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're seeing that happening more and more.
0: Okay, Bernie. I thought it was interesting, one of our viewers had posted that um, as far as school psych programs that I think in California that they were integrating that into school psych programs so that I'm assuming that when you're graduating as a school psych you also maybe have that credential as well. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting.
3: I had not heard that before, uh, it's a good overlap to have. So it was interesting to see that California is really kind of taking that initiative.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I, I knew um, I had a colleague last year who uh, there was a push from our district that uh, we wanted more BCBA BCBA's um, because we had a lot of parents that were asking for that type of therapy in the school system and we have been contracting for it and so the school wanted to provide you know our own staff people because it would be a lot cheaper and so our district was like hey Sykes anyone maybe look at your courses and let us know if you might be close to getting that if you have to take a couple more classes to do it you know please do it and the district was pushing for that and so I had one a colleague who decided to do that and it ended up she needed an extra year and a half of coursework in order to get that so it wasn't just a one or two classes thing mm-hmm. um, for her. Yeah generally you won't see a
3: lot of overlap between the school site curriculum and the ABA curriculum, unless the school psych program was a behavioral program. My background's actually in clinical psychology, and I've kind of been grandfathered in over time, but my clinical psychology program was very behavioral. Um, and so some people, most people are probably gonna need about five to six classes in order to get certified, and they need generally about a year of supervision at the master's level. Um, I've had a number of school psychologists that I've worked with um, in in my consultation that I actually did supervision with who then became certified. So as part of our contract with the district, I actually worked with them to become certified to be that kind of resource for their district.
2: Yeah. Oh. So, Very cool. when you, do you do, um, Chris, do you do any counseling at all as Part of your treatment, or is it no? <laughs> I work. I
3: work almost entirely with school systems, and I work with students sometimes in the school systems. And I might work with the teams to develop hidden programs, or educational programs, or training the teachers. But my job is really more working with the staff than the kids themselves. Oh. I
2: see. And so you're working with them on behavior programs. Is that how is that different from a behavior plan that a school psych would work with teachers and staff?
3: It's it's not that different. Generally I'll go in and do a functional behavior assessment. Sometimes it'll be on a student that maybe the school psych already did one and we're still not seeing any kind of changes. Sometimes it might be that There is none, but it's a high-profile case, or the family is pushing for it, or a school site is asking for more help. And so I'll go in and do an FBA as an outside consultant. I have some school districts that I contract with on a regular basis. One, for instance, is a large district. It has its own two FBAs within it. So my job is to do the assessment is to be a sounding board for them. And then I have another one that's a very small district where I do a lot more of the FBAs, for the kids with developmental disabilities of different kinds.
1: Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's very so I'm sort of wondering about the connection between um, behavior analysis in schools, and like I don't have any in my school. I know. Um, in my area, there's two districts that require autism specialists to gain that credential to continue their employment, and also um, a behavior specialist, like a district-wide position, one of the districts in my area, wants someone to have that credential to help support the entire district. Um, so I know those two things, but um, overall, it sounds like consulting and writing behavior plans are two things where, like, a school psych might interface with the BCBA. Yeah. What about like what about ABA itself, like, teaching kids through ABA? Is that something that you guys help set up? For
3: Yeah, and it really depends. You know, it's so, I'm sure you guys have experienced the difference in school psychologists across the country. Like as I've gone across the country over the last 15 years, what school psychologists do differs tremendously from place to place. So I have districts where all the school psychologists do is test. And I have other places where there are almost many administrators. And I have other places where they really do the counseling, and other places where it's the guidance counselors to do more of the counseling, and the school psychologists have other. Behavior analysts are kind of the same way in terms of how we interface with the school district. So, depending on what the role is, I might come in as a consultant. And help figure out a plan that the school psychologist then oversees and deepens within a classroom. Um, In one district I work in, the school psychologist generally does functional behavior assessments, except for some students where the behavior analysts do the behavior assessments. And it's kind of confusing. Um, But the BCBA isn't usually an educational certification. Mm Uh, so, for instance, I used to do a lot of work um, in high profile cases for a very large district that finally said, let's get our own BCDA. And we laughed because I used to say, this is great. But because you made them have to be a certified school personnel, I don't qualify for that job. Oh, <laughs> oh. Um, so, because state, state departments don't recognize the BCDA as a credential in most states. So. It's kind of like the difference between a clinical psychologist and a school psychologist. Right. In most states, you can practice in a school as a school psychologist, but generally a clinical psychologist might not be eligible. Same kind of thing. Wow.
2: Mm-hmm. And are, are you, I'm just curious about your initials. Can you switch them? Can you put PhD also or is it yes. you, um, yes, usually minus usually minus PhD
3: BCBAD?
2: Okay.
1: That's oh, right
2: The more letters, the better, right? Yes. i wanted <laughs> <of letters. laughs> um, to ask you also, so when you go in and you're looking at um, an intervention on behaviors, is it always kind of remediation or, I mean, is it always a problem behavior that you're looking at or sometimes you go in and say, this child could benefit from, you know, social skills and, and kind of like work on that positive end of the spectrum. Do you do that as well?
3: Well, and because my job is typically as an autism consultant, and my BCBA is part of that, but my expertise is both autism as well as significant behavior disorders, I do a lot of holistic, let's plan a whole program. My goal is, let's put a program in place that we don't have to have a big behavior plan in place. And then I see a lot of higher functioning kids that the behavior plan is not your traditional, this is what you're going to do about the behavior problem, but these are the kinds of supports the student needs to be successful academically and socially and things like that. And I approach behavior from a very functional perspective. My dissertation actually was on how do we teach communication to prevent problem behaviors from increasing. Um, And so my behavior plan is very much, not a reactive behavior plan, but a what do we need to put in place to prevent the behavior, and then what are we teaching? Mm-hmm. You? So it can take place well before you hit a crisis stage. Um, which has been fun, and I've done a lot of work with the higher functioning kids, and it really expanded the view of uh, what a behavior plan is because like, we have some kids, we've written some pretty strong support plans for that people wouldn't necessarily identify in those school districts as, as a problem. It's like, no, we just know that he needs this to be successful, and it's easier for the team if I put all the supports in place.
2: Right. I don't know if anybody out there had a chance to click on school psych- your, psycho- your school psychologist page, the Time Magazine article. I got it from you, Chris, on Twitter. Um, it was a story of a boy named Charlie, with who has autism. But it was it was an example of how assessment falls short because this little boy was not, was nonverbal. But when they when they put um, an intervention in place, they found that through a letter board, he was he was so he was brilliant, and he could, he could read at a level great grades above him and, and comment on, I think it was Huckleberry Finn, and it was an amazing, there's a video on that story, it's on the school site, your school psychologist page, um, the Time Magazine article, it's called Autism Reveals Problems and How We Measure Success. Um, is that the kind of work that you do with the individual students? Um, it varies, and I would say we have to be really careful with those
3: stories. I think that we have a lot of kids that, pe- that people if kids don't talk, we have good research that shows that people expect less of them. So we try very hard to give them a way to communicate. So I work a lot with assistive technology and alternative communication teams, trying to help them determine what kinds of supports they need to be able to get their needs. Um, but I think we also we live in an age in which there's this thought of, "I'll give this kid an iPad." and suddenly he'll be a typical kid. And I think we have to be careful that we're we're not thinking that way. Um, There's still a lot of challenges to overcome, but there's a lot of stuff in there that it's difficult to get out. And especially with very young kids, we see a lot of high-functioning kids who are very, very smart, but definitely have autism. And at the preschool level, we have a lot of people who look at them and say, well, they don't need an intensive program because they've got all the academic." Mm. And in reality, what the research literature tells us is that those are the kids that if we were to provide intensive early intervention for them, they're the kids that are going to go out and not need supports later on because they're going to be okay. But if we say, oh, see how well they're functioning, they don't need much, they're going to fall farther and farther before. Um, and so I see that as a challenge that a lot of schools and school psychologists are facing in terms of being able to demonstrate that academic impact of the disability. Um, we really have to be skilled at looking at how do they function in a group? Are they going to be able to learn and perform in a group activity? And that's why we have a lot of high-functioning kids who don't get identified until they're 11 when they're already have been struggling for a few years. Um, and if you looked at them early, we would see that. But people kind of went, "Oh, they're it's mild, so it's not a big
2: deal." But that early intervention really makes a huge difference for them. So, mm-hmm. what do you think about the assessment? What What are What are the assessments that you like? That you don't like? I mean, I think it, it's
3: so individualized, and I think one of the biggest things is. If you have the opportunity as a school psychologist to observe and work with large numbers of kids with autism it'll make you a stronger assessor. Um, It's one of those things that I see not necessarily school psychologists, but anybody who's seen a couple kids look at some kids and go, oh he doesn't have it because he's you know, he doesn't have this, you know, he doesn't have these kinds of issues because I've only seen these two kids. Their symptoms are so varied that our assessment battery has got to be very individual to try to get at the needs that we have for each of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we've got to make sure that we're assessing the social piece. We've got to make sure that we're assessing the, um, the pragmatic piece and the use of communication and language for social purposes. Uh, as well as the behavior and the rigidity and things like that. Um, so I think that, that piece of it, it's, it's not a one-size-fits-all kind of disorder. And I think that makes it really because some of our high-functioning kids in particular don't always show up on the standardized tests with the significant deficits, and we really have to look for them in things, um, which is somewhat directly different than what people are told to do as a school psychologist, which is to assess them and keep kids out of special ed, not necessarily not giving them services that they need, but their job is to keep them in the general ed classroom as much as possible, when for some of our kids, if we gave them more intensive intervention, down the road
1: it may be more beneficial. That, that is really, really, really good information to have. I want to, like, write it all down and watch, watch the podcast again. <laughs> um, so I I, I don't want to, like – I I have so many thoughts about my, my personal experiences. And, you know, kids are in so many different ratios of classes that I work with and stuff. And I don't really want to go there. You kind of alluded to, you know, sometimes smaller is better and more intense is earlier is better. But um, I would just love to get inside of your brain and hear about, like, what are those things that you set up for kids that set them up for success, those proactive things that are in your atypical kind of behavior intervention or whatever plans that will help our kids perform and prevent those meltdowns. Because I think when I, once I get involved, it's already, like, there's stuff flying across the room or there's aggression. You know what I mean? Like, yes. I want to I wanna set that environment up for these kids. Like, I want to be there to help them and not just, like, when they're flipping
3: out, not just having to be reactive, right?
1: Exactly.
3: And I and I think it's hard. I think for a lot, for most of our kids, I would say a highly structured environment where things are consistent,
1: mm-hmm.
3: where there is not a lockstep, everything's the same all the time, kind of kind of program, but there is a routine that's followed. Um, I used to think that flexible was really kind of what I was looking for in a teacher for a kid with autism until I discovered that you could actually be too flexible and that was even worse because I had a teacher who could never have the same thing at the same time every day Mm -hmm. and I remember sitting down with her and saying, we chose her because she was going to be so flexible, she's a great teacher and she's like, I said, can we have snack at the same time every day? No, I don't think I can. I'm like, Okay, well, my child will be underneath the desk screaming because it's time for snack. And finally, I had to say, we're going to have snack at this time. If your kids want to join us, that would be lovely. But it was just too much flexibility. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that structure and that routine helps all our kids. It's not just kids with autism. Mm
2: -hmm.
3: Um, Giving them a way that represents their day and they can tell what's going to happen next. For some of our kids, it's just what's the next step. For some of our kids, it's what's happening this afternoon. Um, Picking One of the things I tell families a lot and I tell teachers the same thing is pick your battles. Pick the thing that you're going to kind of address now and try to structure everything else so that other things can go smoothly and you can work on the one thing that you're trying to teach. I think the earlier that we teach the communication skills is important, making sure that even if this kid can repeat the entire evening news, it doesn't necessarily mean that he can ask for a banana or help or to go to the bathroom. And so then we really want to look at just is his language really functional to meet his needs. And we know that teaching those kinds of skills can prevent a lot of challenging behaviors. I think teaching self-regulation early on is critical if kids are at a point where they can begin to learn to monitor and understand their own behavior to some degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it's just learning to do a token system that the teacher handles, all the way up from using something like the incredible five point scale to say, I'm a four, and in order to get back to a one, I could ask to take a walk and get a drink of water, get out of the classroom, and maybe that'll bring my level down. Mm-hmm. And being able to do that is a really critical skill that a lot of our kids need direct instruction with. Uh, and then the social piece, because the social piece. And knowing how to handle social environments are the things that lose our kids' jobs when they get older. Mm -hmm. I've known so many college graduates who can't go on to a job and they can't keep a job because they don't understand that you don't just walk off the job when you decide it's time to take a break. Or they don't understand how to interact with their peers and none of the other coworkers want them around. And so that, to me, is a really critical piece. Our our classrooms are such social places, and I don't think we always realize that either. So we see our kids really struggle a lot with group work, with having to have a partner to do something. You know, a lot of times they are the kid that people are like, well, he knows everything, but I don't want to be with him. (laughs) Mm-hmm. He tells me that he knows everything and he doesn't let me talk. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I always he always has to be the leader. I don't want him to always be the leader. We have to teach them how to manage those situations because those are real life situations that we all find ourselves in. Mm-hmm. So to me, those are really the preventive pieces or that social communication piece early on and the self-regulation that if we can teach those. Now, for our kids that are more complex, it's being able to follow a direction, being able to do simple tasks, being able to follow a schedule. We're at a much lower level, but we really have to get those basics in there because otherwise he's going to be 11 and we're going to just be following him around the room trying to get him to do something instead of him being able to sit down and do it. Mm -hmm. I also think independence is a huge one. So I use a lot of independent work systems, structure to help kids learn. I'm going to do something I know how to do, and nobody's going to help me. Because uh, a lot of times our solution is these kids need a lot of supervision, we add people to them, and then they come to depend on those people. So we have to be really careful about how we structure that.
0: I, I've for sure seen that a lot at the high school level where kids come in from, from you know moving up into ninth grade and they've had a one-on-one aid for so long. And we try and I'm like, mm, let's try and get away from that. and not only are the kids dependent on that, but the parents are used to that. And it's right. hard to from.
3: And a lot of times the parents are used to having the same person all day. So they're used to being able to go say to the aid and get information about how their kids day was. And I have a real issue with that because that's really the teacher's responsibility is to be the person that knows what's going on with the kid. It shouldn't be left up to a paraprofessional. And then I've also seen kids, especially in smaller districts, where they've had the same aide for five years. And it's like, okay, they're a little like too close now. And now, and then switching is really hard for them. Uh, because that person's not going to follow them around for the rest of
1: their life.
0: So in, in listening to you um, and... I mean, I think that we can all yeah, picture how a school psych and a BCBA in, in a lot of these interventions can for sure work together, and there seems to be a lot of overlap there. Now, what about um, when a BCBA is hired to come in for the purpose of ABA therapy? What, can you just tell us a little bit about what ABA therapy might look like in the home setting and then also in the school setting, and if there's any differences, and, and how we should be working with people to facilitate anything with that?
3: Um, I'm assuming when you say ABA therapy, you mean like a discrete trial program that the kids are getting, especially early on. Um, and so they're getting a very structured kind of teaching that we can do in a classroom. Um, and I think one of the things that I advocate for is different districts do it different ways. Some are okay with the home people coming into the school. Florida has a new rule that says that, that they have to allow outside home professionals to come into the classroom and provide services, which has been an interesting adjustment for our schools. Um, And so some, you know, it varies based on the situation and the district and things like that. In most places that I work, our goal is to move the child into school and provide the program that he needs in school. But we also want to have coordination with the family. So that if they've got a professional working with them at home, we want to make sure that we're on the same page. So we sometimes will do monthly meetings, we'll share data, um, we'll have, I have a, a student right now who has a huge team of people from home and school, and we use Dropbox to share videos and pictures and things like that about the child of what she's done during the day so the home people can see how it's being done and the school people can see how things are done at home. And that's really helped to kind of both build trust with the family as well as helping to support them in on each side and helping the child be successful, and she's been beautifully successful because of it. Um, so I think that collaboration is really a huge piece. Um, and I think school psychologists can work really well with the teachers to help them figure out how can they collaborate in a way that doesn't completely overwhelm their teaching. Because uh, I think that's hard. <laughs> but we do a lot of—I do a lot of training with schools personnel in providing discrete trial programs mm-hmm. in coordination with home. Um, and generally, we will have regular meetings with families to kind of help them coordinate and share information and make sure that we're not working at cross-purposes.
0: Very cool. I want to apologize to anyone watching. I'm having, I, I, I found it a dark area in the hotel lobby or I found a, a secluded area, which I thought would be good. And now the sun's setting and I'm realizing there's no lights around me. So I've also had some difficulty with my microphone and picking up people. So a um, little bit of technical difficulties, but I'm still here. You might not be able to see me too well.
1: That's okay. Very good information. <laughs> yeah, really, really interesting. So uh, it sounds like we can work with teachers and helping make the communication easier. because it's, it's so hard, that, that part, and making yeah. the time for teachers to communicate with each family and to make that connection and to work together. Yeah. Um, do you have any tips for, like, working with families and how to make that good?
3: I try, you know, we. one of the things I do is I try to set up some kind of structured communication system that goes back and forth to home and school. Mm -hmm. I often will do one that's almost a checkoff system so that they can get information, parents can get the information that they want in a way that doesn't involve the school having to write a novel to go home every day.
1: Mm
2: -hmm.
3: Um, I generally will ask families what they want Because I've had some families that are like, please don't send me a note home every day. I can't look at a note every day. Send me a weekly summary. That I can handle. And I have other families that are like, could you, like, send me an email, like, every 10 minutes? Because then I would really know what's going on. And, of course, you know, obviously that's not possible. But there has to be some common ground and some in between. So generally what I do is I set up a structured home note that teachers can fill out quickly. Mm -hmm. Aides can fill out parts of it and give some substantive information. Like, he did his independent work system completely by himself today. He ate this, this, and this. I have a lot of families and a lot of kids with eating issues. Yeah, So their families really want to know, what did he eat today? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, don't send the egg salad back to me. I don't want to smell it at the end of the day, but tell me how much of it he ate. Mm -hmm. Uh, So sometimes that is on there. Um, There's also, on the back side, a system where the kids, the parents can send information back to the school so that the school then has information about how he slept, um, about what kinds of things he did at home, so that when we're working on some conversational skills, we kind of know the answers before we ask the questions. It's hard to ask a kid, what did you do last night? he goes, well, I rode the Zamboni. And you're like, "I went to a hockey game? (laughs) <laughs> like, he's never been to a hockey game <laughs> okay well then that is not the right answer but if you don't know that how do you know Right. Uh, and so we found that to be really helpful as well and then I think email makes things a little bit easier because you can do things when it's not in real time as opposed to having to stop a call and things like that um, but really figuring out kind of what is what's going to work for both for each team because every teacher is different too I mean, I have teachers who'll tell, give a lot more information, say at the beginning of the year, and then as they build the trust with the family, kind of it, it decreases and the need for it decreases over time.
0: Mm-hmm. And I
3: have others that it's like, I'm not doing that. I don't have time. I can't do that. And so we have to come to some kind of understanding about what's going to work for both groups of people. Mm-hmm. I also really encourage teachers the, with the idea that positive send home things that are positive, because so often we're sending home he didn't do this, he hit this kid, this happened, this happened and I think we really need to make sure that we're focusing on the he did his art project all by himself today, he was independent when he did his bathroom routine today or whatever it is, we need to celebrate those those activities and families need to celebrate and hear them as well.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, On those daily sheets a lot of my parents like to hear about bathroom. Yeah. also. A brain-gut connection, what's going on there. A lot of issues in the current school that parents want to know about. Um, you guys had questions that I see in our comment bar.
2: Yeah. Well, I'm really wondering because um, in my program, we spent just a, a little time Learning exactly kind of how to do an FBA well, and we didn't. I I feel like that's something that I could really, and I have, you know, made attempts. (laughs) I have done it, um, and I keep reading about it and keep trying to learn. But I'm wondering if you could kind of walk us through for school sites that do use FBAs or are trying to learn them, kind of um, like a mini example of what that would be like for you. How do how you run it, you know, and. And it really kind of varies based on the
3: situation and the, the person. I seem to have lost whoever was on the screen. You did? Yeah. I still have a all. Okay. Maybe it's just me. Um, I just have a big blank screen. Oh. Um, Move your mouse. Move your mouse. Maybe okay. You... Oh, maybe that's what it was. I don't know. No, <laughs> um, so it went away. When Annie came on, it was there. But, <laughs> it <went> there. <laughs> but now it's gone again. Okay. <laughs> uh-huh. So well, I, I hope that things are okay. I don't know. <laughs> I actually did a series about that on my blog because I think, and it's kind of long because oh. it's all the different pieces. It kind of takes you from yeah. the actual defining the problem all the way through developing a behavior plan. right you okay. see a behavior plan as being. But I think that the key is you want to observe the behavior, as much as possible, trying to figure out as much as you can about what happens before and what happens after. And right. I think that there's that feeling of people will say, oh, well, we don't know what happens before. Well, sometimes it's because we didn't we didn't write it down because we didn't think it was relevant. Well, if we knew it was relevant, we wouldn't need to take the data. So the more information that people can can, um, can collect, the more they're going to be able to kind of find some patterns within the data. But I generally will do an interview with the family, with the school staff, to try to get information. And there's some resources on my blog of interviews that are available to download from different sites. Um, And the... Sorry, it keeps going black, and it keeps distracting me. Um, And then from that, I then figure out how I need to take data, whether it's something where I feel comfortable that the teacher really understands what needs to be done and knows how to take data and can take it, whether I need to go into the classroom and take it. I always want to make sure I observe the student so that I am seeing what's going on. We do have a little phenomenon that I call it's always opposite day when I come to visit, yeah. The kid that everybody thought was amazing, has a horrible day. The kid that everybody thought was out of his you know, having a really hard time has the best days had all year. I think um, can relate to uh, school sites can relate to that. i uh, sure. <laughs> um, and so sometimes, you know, I've had families that have given me videotapes to look at so um, that I can see how their kid you know, what their kid is looking like in different kinds of settings. Um, I've had schools that have done the same thing. Um, I generally will take some data, and then from that and the interview, I will look for patterns. If I can't find patterns, I might go in and do more of a manipulation of setting something up to see if I can create a behavior uh, behavior problem. I try not to do that because to me it just seems mean to go into the classroom, set the kid up for a problem, and then go, thank you, that was what I needed to see, now I'll leave. Um, And I don't always have the time to kind of say, now let me stay here for the rest of the day because I know I've messed up your entire day. Mm -hmm. Because when we mess up a kid's behavior, we don't just mess up an hour for most of them. It's usually the rest of the day falls apart. Um, And so... For some kids, I need to go back and really do that kind of, if I do this, what does he do? If I do this, what does he do? And take data on that in more of what we think of as a functional analysis type of approach to experimentally try to figure out what's going on. Mm -hmm. Um, I was just going to say that. I can kind of get a, a feel for it from looking at the patterns of the ABC data.
0: At mm-hmm. um, one of my districts, we had a training from the May Institute, mm-hmm. and um, they talked a little bit about functional analysis versus, um, you know, assessment. And I thought that that was interesting because that was something that um, we didn't really touch on in my program and whatnot. Can you talk a little bit about the, the differences Because just because you referenced that?
3: Yeah, we kind of, it, it's kind of just a difference that kind of evolved over time. Uh, It's the difference between an analog functional analysis or an experimental functional analysis where we deliberately run specific conditions so that look at if every time he does this, I reinforce him by, let's say, in an escape condition, every time he hits me, I take the work away. If I do that for a couple sessions of 15 minutes, do I see the behaviors increase? If I attend to him every time he has a behavior problem when there's an issue uh, for a 15-minute session, do the behaviors increase over time? Um, And then a functional assessment is often where we're doing what we think of as a more naturalistic assessment where we're taking data in the context of their natural environment and trying to come up with some parallels and best guesses about what's going on. A functional analysis will give you an experimental much more specific function. The problem is if you don't do it in the natural environment where it isn't always feasible to set a kid off, um, sometimes you have difficulty with generalization between the two. If You ever have the chance to see Greg, Greg Hanley um, who's actually from Massachusetts. He does a really good talk about a procedure that he uses that kind of combines an interview to gather information and then a short two-condition functional analysis where he deliberately takes the thing that the, he asks the staff and the family, what's the thing you could do that would guarantee to set this kid off? And then that's what he does and then he does a control condition where he does, what's the best, what's the thing you could do to guarantee he won't go off? That's the control condition. So if the condition that makes him go off is when you try to take his iPad away and make him go to work, that's what he sets up. Uh, And then as soon as the behavior happens, he stops it. And then the control condition is, well, if you just let him keep the iPad you won't have a problem, they do that and the behavior problems are low. So it's a way of kind of confirming the information that he gets from the from the interview. And his interview is actually, I think I linked to it somewhere on my site and I can find it if anyone's interested, uh, of just the questions that he asked to the staff and the family to try to get that information to set up those two conditions. And he does it, he tries very hard to do it in the natural environment so that the, all the triggers that are available in that natural environment are still there, as opposed to pulling him out to do a functional assessment where I may not be able to create the whole setting, you know, it's much different to go off and be the class clown in the classroom than it is if I do it in a room with an adult who doesn't respond. Uh, you know, and we can't always control. It's not always the best solution, but sometimes that's a good combination of the two.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Okay,
0: Rebecca, I think you had some questions too that you were typing yeah. out.
2: I'm just wondering if you have more functions. Um, that you find than we do. You know, the general ones we have are escape and attention, sensory. Do you have a wider repertoire of functions that you assign behaviors to?
3: I would say, and it's funny because my thinking about this has evolved over the years, I would now say that almost all functions kind of fall into one of two categories. You're either trying to get away from something or you're trying to get something. To me, I don't worry so much about the function and its name of whether or not it's attention, escape, or sensory, I worry about what are the specific conditions. So I train my students when they write hypothesis statements, be specific. Say, you know, when he's presented with this kind of situation, he responds with this type of behavior, and this is what normally happens, as opposed to just telling me he tries to escape. Because that doesn't tell me what he's trying to escape. He might be trying to escape the cafeteria because socially it's an overwhelming experience. He might be trying to escape the math homework. He might be trying to escape the teacher yelling at him. Um, There are various ways you can look at it. And I see that uh, someone had talked about the debate about power and control being a function. I would say that to me power and control is a function it's the key to all the functions. Um, we have kids that engage in behavior to get people's attention and people will say, well he gets attention all the time, why would he be having behavior problem? The reason is typically because consistently he can get attention more quickly, more easily, more reliably with the behavior than he can with a more appropriate behavior. Raising his hand, sometimes people don't call on him, calling out the teacher's name, sometimes she tells him to wait and then doesn't come back. But if he falls on the floor and starts screaming, people come every single time. And it's the ability to control gaining the attention that to me is really the big piece for it. And I think we see with a lot of our ED kids, we've seen that for those kids who are have emotional difficulties as opposed to say our, de- our kids with developmental disabilities, we've really had a hard time figuring out how do we make this model that we develop for individuals with DV match these average functioning kids with emotional disorders. And I think we have to look at some of the automatic reinforcers that play a role. We have some kids who engage in behaviors because it makes their anxiety decrease. Yeah. Um, acting out in a certain way gets me um, you know, some level of relief because I no longer have to wonder when the teacher's going to yell at me. She's yelling at me now. I made it happen. It happened faster. Um, And so that's an intention, but again, it's the control piece that's really making it the most efficient and making it the one he chooses.
2: That makes sense. Uh, Chris, I wanted to ask you because today in our um, conversation before the podcast, we talked a little bit about the comorbidity um, in autism with anxiety, you just mentioned anxiety, and also depression, do you, wh- when you find that is part of the, um, the presenting problem for a student, how do you address that with a behavior plan? We work a
3: lot on self-regulation. Um, we have some research now that shows that kids with high-functioning autism, particularly with depression and anxiety, respond well to cognitive behavioral therapy. So I have a number of guys that we've recommended that as part of their behavior plan because they need to learn how to rework how they think about situations. You know, they tend to do that. Everything's my everything bad is my fault, and everything that's good that happens to me just happens, and I don't have any control over it. And we want to think about, um, you know, how do we get that self script rewritten? And then how do we teach them how to manage their anxiety? So we do a lot of relaxation training, a lot of desensitization, a lot of really cognitive behavioral strategies, and then give them supports. I really like the incredible five-point scale as a self-regulation. It's easy, it's simple, and everybody has the same kind of language. So if I walk up to a 15-year-old and say, hey, you're looking like a 4, I don't have to say, you're looking like you're out of control. All I have to say is, you're looking like a four, and he knows what that means.
1: Mm -hmm. He
3: knows what to do from that because we've practiced it. Um, I use social stories a lot with those kids um, just to introduce concepts so that they have the whole information. I don't necessarily expect the social story to change their behavior, but I know that at least then they've got the whole picture. Um, and it helps them understand a little bit better the perspectives of other people and things like that. So I think the self-regulation, the self-talk, and some of those cognitive behavioral strategies we want to do, but we want to make them concrete, as, as concrete as possible. So structured like the five-point scale, I think mean, there's an anxiety curve that Carrie Denver and talks about that uses the same principle. Um, those kinds of tools that we can pull out where they can see it, often really helps our kids Uh, because just talking about it doesn't help them because their communication is one of the things that makes them anxious.
0: Mm. Awesome. Um, I know we're about to wrap up. I have one more quick question for you. We talked a little bit about um, the similarities uh, between a BCBA and a school psychologist. What are some of the differences? What are some of the things that maybe um, you might be trained to handle Uh, where we're maybe not super informed about? Where where should we be deferring to you? I would say the difference really is just we come at
3: it from a very ABA type of point of view. And you'll meet behavior analysts who have other backgrounds, so they'll come with other tools in their bag as well. My background's in clinical psychology, so my tool bag is probably a little bit bigger than somebody who just did a master's in ABA. Um, But I think really making sure that we're looking at the observable behavior is one of the things that we're specifically trained to do. Um, and generally, we should be really good at data collection, looking at functional behavior assessments, those kinds of things. School well, psychologists may have had a lot of training in that. It depends on what program you went to. It depends on where you are. How much ABA knowledge you have is, is different depending on what kind of program you went through. Uh, just like it is for us, um, but I think that you know one of the things that we can't do—we don't do any kind of a, any kind of testing or evaluation or eligibility. That is not something that BCBA's are trained to do or expected to do. Uh, which was great because that was the part I didn't like to do, and I was very happy to get rid of it. Um, <laughs> My PhD is in clinical psychology, but I operate as, as a behavior analyst, not a psychologist. I just happen to have a lot of experience from my PhD program, oh. um, and so it's it's kind of interesting. What um, do
2: you do? What if you do if you're called in and you think the child doesn't have autism? Does it matter? Um, well, in my in my ABA world, no, it does not matter. Okay. Um, how I'm going to treat
3: him is going to depend on what behaviors demonstrate what, what's causing the behavioral issues, I will generally make a recommendation for somebody to evaluate him for eligibility if I think something else is going on because it opens up funding sources and support. Usually it's the other way around. I don't think I've I've almost never seen a kid who had a diagnosis of autism that didn't actually have it. I have seen a lot of kids that people said didn't have it that I went, he really does. Please, he really kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do that because understanding that he has autism helps people know how to deal with him, not because it makes any difference in what I think he needs, but it helps future IEP teams and future service providers
1: have a better understanding of what kinds of supports he's going to need to be successful. This has been so amazing. Thank you, Chris. Great. Um, okay. we got to put your blog link on our on our page, the School Psych Podcast page, and I want to spend, like hours reading through your materials. Thank you. You Yeah, just a a couple drinks, (laughs) because
3: I did it right, and I had somebody tell me the other day, she's like, it's like if you put it all together, you'd have a really big book. I'm like, I know, and I have a hard time like,
1: breaking the chapters down small enough sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, thank you so much for joining us. I think we're going to wrap up. Um, Any final comments or anything? No, I think it's great. I mean, I think that
3: the opportunity for BCBAs and school psychologists to work together is huge mm-hmm. um, because some of what we do is overlap, but we both bring different things to the table that we can make much better. So, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of collaboration, and I think that the more people we have collaborating, the better solutions we have.
1: Hear, here, right. <laughs> cool. You rock. Thank you for joining us. Thank, um, you. Up, like, thank you. But um, join us again June 7th. We think we're going to talk about RTI and possibly have Jim Wright join us. So Great. log in <laughs> and um, see you guys next month. Right.
2: See you next month. Bye. Bye. Bye.